Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson's threat to break international law over Brexit has been condemned pretty widely by members of his own party as well, with many fellow Conservatives warning it's going to damage the UK's global standing. How can the government reassure future international partners that the UK can be trusted to abide by the legal obligations of the agreements it signs. Well, that, of course, was the former Prime Minister Theresa May there speaking in the Commons and talking about the government's plan to rewrite parts of the Brexit divorce deal it had previously agreed with the European Union only last year. And that comes after the Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis made a rather weird admission in Parliament. I would say to my um, honourable friend that, yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. Specific and limited way, eminently memeable, that one. And indeed, that has been thoroughly mined on the internet. There's been a long line of Tory and Labour MPs, including also the Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, as well, condemning that move. So as you, you say, Roger, a pretty widespread disapproval over this one. Yes, and, and not unlikely that the Irish Foreign Minister would get involved because a lot of this is about Ireland. Because what the new law is intended to do is to change, if there's no deal outcome to the Brexit talks, the way goods move within and across borders. And that means specifically the two-border arrangement under which Northern Ireland would get special treatment, continuing to be bound by the EU's custom rules after Britain leaves the single market and customs union on December the 31st, but avoiding a hard border with the Irish Republic. And a change in that could threaten the Good Friday Accord. Also alienate US lawmakers who, of course, are going to be needed to back any new US-UK trade deal. Well, let's dig into this with Chris Hazard, who's Sinn Féin MP for South Down and the party's spokesperson for Brexit. Chris, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. How big a problem is this? Well, morning. Uh, well, look, it's apparent now. Uh, you know, we're waiting for the final detail, but I, I think we can you know, say for some surety that the British government are cynically trying to exploit um, the withdrawal agreement that they signed last year in an effort to play hardball, um, to be able to leverage some concessions at the very last stages of the, the trade talks. Now, the, the, the major act of bad faith is here that they're blatantly threatening the ability of the Irish peace process in itself um, in the selfish strategic interests of, you know, the Brexiteers and, and Downing Street. You know, they say it's about tidying up inadvertent loose ends, but in, in reality, it's a flagrant move to unilaterally define an international agreement. Um, and as I say, in the eyes of the watching world, um, you know, this will just be astonishing. The, the remarks from the Secretary of State yesterday on his feet uh, in Parliament 
um, just completely unacceptable for you know a minister of government to say that. I think it you know illustrates once again the propensity of Downing Street to set aside international obligations, uh, as I say, in their own narrow, selfish political interests. Um, and certainly for the people of Ireland, the people I represent, you know, this is an intolerable situation. Um, it's good that the Irish um, Foreign Minister Simon Coveney has come out and said it's unacceptable. I know the Taoiseach Michael Martin is speaking with the, the Prime Minister today uh, and European figures, of course, are, are, are watching with some interest now to get the detail uh, on the legislation. But yeah. as you, you actually said yourself there at the outset, so too are people in America. You know, I welcome the fact that Congressman Richie Neal has restated once again the, that the British government can kiss goodbye um, to any future trade deal um, if, if they if trample over the rights of the, the, the peace process here in Ireland. And that, that's well, well, well support at this stage. You mentioned the peace process. Explain to us why this is so important for Ireland. Are you saying that the Good Friday Agreement is in peril if this goes ahead? Well, we said from the start, uh, and this must this is a really important point, as did the British government. The British government, in partnership with the European Union, acknowledged the, the very difficult situation with trying to fit Brexit in to the pre-existing Good Friday Agreement, of course, which is an international um, agreement, peace treaty uh, of itself in that there would be no hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, now, if Britain wants to unilaterally decide um, you know, which items are at risk, for example, when they travel across the Irish Sea, you know, that goes beyond just tidying up loose ends. The reality is that they were very intentionally put there in order to protect the Royal Ireland economy uh, and Ireland's place in the single market. How can it be allowed that, you know, that we would have to be able to allow the likes of chlorinated chicken or hormone-induced beef into the market in the north of Ireland? And that, of course, would move right across into the, the EU single market. It's just simply not possible. That's what this has all been about from the start, acknowledging that there is a delegate peace process acknowledging that it's built upon items of trust between Ireland and Britain and, of course, the European Union and the Americans were very much part of all of that. But and Brexit has never been compatible with our peace process. We said that from the outset, uh, and that's why we need that special mechanism to be able to protect us going forward, and that's but, what the protocol did. But, Chris, are you saying, are you really saying that potentially peace could be a threat over something like chlorinated chicken. I mean, surely surely there are bigger issues well, here to think about rather than trade. Well, I, I'm using the chlorinated chicken and trade as an example as, as to how um, the, the agreements already reached, the internationally binding agreements already reached, um, have been put in place about protecting our All-Ireland economy. You know, it's not my, myself, it's not my judgment when I, when I talk about the rest of the peace process. Our, my, our own chief constable of the police service uh, has spoken um, at quite some length about how a hard Brexit and a return of a hard border in Ireland and what that would mean for the stability of our peace process. So that, that's not my um, judgment on it. I'm simply reflecting the words of the, the Chief Constable who has flagged those fears up. Um, but our, the very business models of our own uh, economy here in the island of Ireland are built upon the all-Ireland nature uh, of our economy. You know, this would be a severe economic hit uh, coming on the back of COVID as well. You know, it's simply unacceptable. It's why so much work went into getting those protections, working with the European Union and the Irish government to ensure there would be no return um, to hard border, to ensure that we would have unfettered access east and west. The problem in all of this, and it goes back to this problem, is that for Brexiteers and the British government more generally, they've made a huge error in the Brexit decision in 2016, and they've continued at every stage since then to weaken their hand. And this all comes down to a refusal to accept 
that an internal economic border and the very fact that they're going to have to remain an EU rule taker of sorts to be able to facilitate the uh-huh. Good Friday Agreement, which trumps all of us. Well, what about the threat of Republican dissidents? We've seen that uh, the likes of the real IRA are still active. Is this likely to become a bigger problem if you introduce the possibility of a hard border, as, as, as we're seeing the risk of? Well, again, as I say, you know, I only have to reflect on what the Chief Constable has said, and he's in a much better position than myself to be able to um, to be able to reflect upon this. And he is he has um, made that um, link. He has flagged up the fact that um, you know a return of a hard border. Um, you know, a peace process under threat, uh, of course, has implications for for all of this. I say he will have intelligence briefings and all the rest of it, enabling him to be able to make that accession. I very much hope that is not the case. You know, that's why we had this agreement last year. That's why the people of Ireland backed the protocol. You know, the vast majority of people in the north of Ireland are very supportive of these arrangements. They want these arrangements in place. You know, they were always opposed to Brexit. We didn't vote for Brexit. Um, as I say, so it's in a very unfortunate yeah. position. And I go back to my original point. This is the British government um, now exploiting um, the people of Ireland um, and using us uh, as bait Chris. in trying to get concessions at the last stage of the trade talks. Chris, let me move you on, if I may, to the issue of the virus, which, of course, is still very a big thing in Northern Ireland, indeed, uh, everywhere. Um, how effective do you think the administration in Northern Ireland has been in dealing with the damage from the pandemic compared to the rest of the country. We know what's going on in Scotland, Wales and England. Do yeah. you think Stormont's been as effective? Well, I, I think the first thing to say, of course, like you know, if you look across the island of Ireland, you know, there's many thousands of people. Um, I think the figures just over 2,000 people have unfortunately died um, from the virus. So, you know, of course, in the first instance, my thoughts are with those families that have lost loved ones and it's been horrible. Um, to be able to have to go through this process. I think the big advantage for us here on the island of Ireland is that we've been able to set our own destination in trying to deal with this. Certainly it's a storm. Um, we have looked on the British government with horror at, at times and, and how they have handled it or mishandled it. Um, you know, to see Boris Johnson at the start advocating a policy of herd immunity was uh, was just astonishing. Uh, that, you know, like a modern economic superpower as to what Britain pertains to be. Um, would decide to to do that, to put their people at risk. So I think it's been good that the devolved regions have been able to set their own course. I think on on, on the whole, um, the Stormont administration has done well, always um, handcuffed to a certain extent by the fact that, you know, we don't have the financial leverage that we would like to be able to do. So whenever we want to take, um, you know, actions, for example, around the economy and protecting jobs and protecting extending the furlough scheme, for example, that needs to be done. You know, we don't hold those economic labours, so we're still unfortunately tied um, to some of the bad policies of Britain. But by and large, on the whole, I think Stormont has, has done a good job. Um, but as I say, that's not to take away from the fact that, of course, you know, many thousands of families are sitting there having lost loved ones. I mean, very, very briefly, uh, the rules are slightly different in Northern Ireland, but still quite confusing, especially if we're talking about how many people can gather and where and the various exceptions. Do we need to clear that up for, for Northern Irish people to have some certainty? Well, I think, I, I think the very nature of it and the fact that it changes from, from week to week as the ebb and flow of the virus um, continues will, will lead to have this being a very fluid situation. Uh, I think the, the administration here has been very good and it's... Um, it's communication with the public. By and large, there's, there's, you know, very high um, 
tolerance for some of the restrictive measures like the wearing of masks and um, you know we haven't seen too many instances of the, the type of nature that we've seen in other places certainly um, so you know I think by and large the public are behind the messaging and are behind the, the need for social distancing etc The countdown has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This week marks a very special event, Bloomberg Westminster's one-year anniversary. And Roger, what a year it's been to get diving into British politics, huh? Yes. I mean, you know, people say it's nice to live in uh, calm times. Uh, we certainly didn't do that. We lived in interesting times. I think that would be fair and reasonable and not in a limited or specific way, to coin a phrase. It was extraordinary. We had, of course, Brexit, the virus and everything in between, including uh, government led by a man who many people thought would never get into that position. And perhaps some think he might not be terribly happy into being stuck in that position. But it's we've, we've had the MPs, we've had Lords, we've had campaigners, we've had a whole host of views. Yeah, and uh, a big change of direction for both the main parties that last course of the year. Uh, big personalities coming to the fray, not least Boris Johnson. So really a lot has changed. Let's have a little reminder of where we started out a year ago. Here is a look back at some of those biggest moments. We began with a new Prime Minister after the former Conservative leader Theresa May stepped down. When we went on air in September 2019, Boris Johnson was still hoping for a Halloween Brexit. I want everybody to know there are no circumstances in which I will ask Brussels to delay. We're leaving on the 31st of October, no ifs or buts. And he was facing some challenges in getting his agenda through the UK Parliament, and it became a constitutional matter. The decision to advise Her Majesty to prorogue Parliament was unlawful. It had the effect of frustrating or preventing the ability of Parliament to carry out its constitutional functions without reasonable justification. I strongly disagree uh, with what the justices have found. It demonstrates a contempt for democracy and an abuse of power by him. But then his luck changed and the deal that was thought to be impossible came through in the final hour. We have a deal. This is a fair, a balanced agreement. It is testament to our commitment to finding solutions. It provides certainty where Brexit creates uncertainty. But the former president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, would find that the Brexit deal was not entirely done, at least not if you asked British MPs. We will not give in to this agreement, which we believe does damage to our part of the United Kingdom. I'm moving this amendment, Mr Speaker, to ensure that whichever way any future votes may go today or next week or the week after, we can be secure in the knowledge that the UK will have requested an extension. The eyes to the right, 322. The nose to the left, 306. So the eyes have it. The eyes have it. I will not negotiate a delay with the EU. And neither, and, and, and neither does the law compel me to do so. Prime Minister must now comply with the law. Yeah. 
He can no longer use the threat of a no-deal crash-out to blackmail members to support his sell-out deal. And so, just months after taking the helm of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson called a December election. For those of us camping out in front of Westminster, it was a particularly cold and yet exciting morning in which the new political landscape unfolded. I hereby declare that the said Boris Johnson is duly elected. It does look as though this One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. And with that Tory majority came the UK's official exit from the EU shortly after. But just as we'd begun to digest life outside the bloc, the coronavirus pandemic struck. I must continue uh, my self-isolation until uh, that symptom itself goes. Please, please stick with the guidance now. This country has made a huge effort, a huge sacrifice, done absolutely brilliantly well in uh, delaying the spread of the virus. Uh, let's stick with it now. For his part, the new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, has been supportive of the government's initiatives. But lately, PMQs have revealed an opposition ready to take on the government, as the UK ranked high on global rankings of deaths and infections. Yesterday, we learnt, tragically, that at least 29,427 people in the UK have now lost their lives to this dreadful virus. That's now the highest number in Europe. That's not success, or apparent success. So can the Prime Minister tell us, how on earth did it come to this? So there you have it. The last year in politics, it's been exciting at times. It's been tear your hair out, frustrating uh, others. And it's been pretty tragic uh, throughout certain periods of that story. Whatever you think of the decisions, it's been a lot of fun to cover in certain ways. And there we have it now. The government performing several U-turns over education could hurt their popularity further. One poll now putting Labour on level with the Conservatives. So we've seen a real shift there. And what's more, the spectre of a no-deal Brexit is back. It's weighing on the pound, it's setting up autumn for another showdown between the UK and the EU as we head towards that deadline for striking a trade deal at the end of the year. Well, let's bring in Bloomberg Opinions, Therese Raphael, who has accompanied us through the last year uh, in many ways, giving us her commentary on what's going on and what it all means. Well, first of all, let's start off with the mo issue of the moment and, of course, the issue that kind of began our career as a programme, Brexit. At the moment, Therese, the issue is still about state aid, or fishing as well, but state aid primarily in terms of the dispute between the EU and the UK. And surely this seems a bit weird for um, a Conservative government to be fighting over. Yeah, it, it certainly seems ironic that a government that was so instrumental in shaping the EU's state aid policy and that for years criticised uh, French governments when they mollycoddled industry and supported them, criticised, you know, other EU governments for stepping in and, and supporting industries is now uh, in a battle to try to you know do the same and perhaps even go further than the EU state aid rules uh, permit. So that, that also just doesn't sit very comfortably with many conservatives. We heard William Hague, uh, David Gawke and others saying we don't want to become a sort of dirigiste uh, state. We need to spell out these rules. Clearly, this isn't the direction that the conservative uh, party and, and the philosophy of governance really uh, you know, should really be supporting. 
And yet I think Boris Johnson does have a point in wanting to preserve for the UK, which is no longer a member of the EU, the right to decide its own state aid policy. I don't think anyone can really argue that uh, the UK should be able to do that. And I think he's also right in looking around the world, looking to countries that have done say, tech policy really well, that have used the state to support innovation, but not um, you know, in a way that distorts competition, I'm thinking about Singapore and Israel, uh, and, and say, well, you know, can that work in Britain? Should we think how we uh, approach that area of things? And can that be part of this great leveling up agenda that he's, he wants yeah. to pursue? So the reason this is just so toxic is this intersection between you know, his rationale for getting Brexit done on the one hand and his governing vision of leveling up the UK economy. Yeah, you hear a lot about uh, tech companies and how important they're going to be down the road in terms of being a world power, especially from the top brass in uh, government and around it. But then another point you make in your column, Therese, is that the EU isn't exactly blameless either here. No, the EU uh, certainly isn't. I mean, we've seen time and again the EU kind of demonise the UK position. It's you know, this is not unreasonable for Britain to want to set its own state aid policy, um, and nor does the EU have that much to fear in it. Britain has been um, one of the most restrained EU countries in applying state aid rules. So France and Germany have subsidised and supported their industries to a much greater extent uh, than the EU. So uh, you know, a little more um, leeway from uh, from Brussels, I think, would be in order here. There's clearly a uh, a compromise that could be struck, but at the moment where the positions of both sides seem uh, far too entrenched to kind of reach that, that middle point. I suppose, Therese, I mean, let, let's focus also on what has really transfixed the country in the last 24 hours or so. This is a government that seems to be willing to break international law. I mean, do, do you read this as a an aberration, perhaps a cabinet minister ill-advised to speak as he did? Or is this truly a government now that, that is perhaps prepared to shred Britain's international reputation? I think everyone is puzzling over that exact question. I mean, in one sense, it's not an aberration for... Uh, for Boris Johnson, I mean, we, we, you know whether uh, Brandon Lewis would have chosen slightly different words now. I, I suppose we won't know, but you know this is a uh, a politician who we know um, is not particularly tied to any one principle or position, um, and has in the past, uh, you know, I think some have referred to it as a sort of kamikaze tactic, been willing to just blow things up and see where the pieces land and hope that there's a way through. So, you know, we, we saw it with the prorogation of Parliament. It ended up in the court. The Supreme Court slapped down uh, Johnson's decision, and yet it didn't seem to have any real negative effect. On the contrary, it, it sort of signaled to his base and his supporters that he was serious about getting things done. And perhaps he's thinking that uh, in this case, uh, you know, it will be something similar. Only we're getting so close to this point where Britain leaves the single market. And so it's getting quite real now, isn't it? It's not just about, yeah. um, you know, we're not going into a transition. We're actually leaving uh, leaving the current arrangement with trade is frictionless. Very briefly, Therese, got to ask you about the virus. Are we heading for another national lockdown mm -hmm. here? Mm, I think Boris Johnson is going to try to avoid that at all costs. Uh, but we know that you know, Johnson struggles when he has to make decisions between competing interests. He wants to help the economy. He wants to contain the virus. If he can't 
succeed in these these incremental lockdown measures, um, there'll be bigger steps in yeah. store. But I, I think at all costs, he's going to want to avoid that national lockdown simply because it's not clear the country can afford another one. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.